that's what players like Myers had to contend with, hearing chants like dirty redskin, dumb Indian, go back to the reservation. This was constant, and they had to uh, they had to cope with it and, and go about their business on the baseball field, not pay attention to it for the most part. It was tough. It was tough. So just like Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and the, and the first African-Americans baseball in the 40s, same sort of thing. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, sports fans, how you doing? Thank you so much for coming back to our little podcast uh, in our little corner of the podcast world. We call it Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming back. If it's a return visit, if it's your first time here, uh, I thank you for giving us a try. Hopefully we uh, don't disappoint. And um, and if you like what you hear, please indeed just uh, give us a rating and a review with some positivity, if you would, wherever you can do such things, certainly Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. We certainly uh, enjoy and uh, appreciate the uh, the love if you like what you hear. If you don't, well, you know, don't tell anybody, okay? Thanks. All right. Well, uh, let us see. What are we working on today? We're talking about baseball uh, again in our conversations uh, in this uh, hour or so, and uh, in particular, a very interesting and uh, richly complex story. Um, it is centered around a player uh, that played uh, during the uh, the era known as the dead ball era of baseball, and that was sort of in the 19-teens and 1920s, uh, and arguably the place, the time, the era when strategy really uh, became a very integral part and appreciated part uh, of what we know now today as, uh, as modern-day baseball. Uh, today, I guess you would call that small ball, right? This is an era where not only the ball was not nearly as lively as it is today in terms of its uh, uh, fabric and, and, and uh, uh, bindings and all those kinds of things, but also, frankly, the fact that uh, the ball and the equipment was uh, used on a, on a very heavy basis, meaning, for example, you know, a ball would go in the stands. Uh, it was expected that the fans would throw the ball back and, and they would continue to play with it, scuffs and and uh, seam bursts and all. So uh, the idea of not only the ball physically, but uh, frankly, the idea of, of power hitting and those kinds of things and home runs, I mean, they were very, very uh, uncommon at that period of time. And uh, so the era of small ball, uh, we now know today as small ball or certainly the dead ball era and strategy uh, is the background for uh, our conversation today with our friend Bill Young. And the topic is a guy uh, who, uh, as a Native American player, another sort of part of this context and story, uh, named John Tortez, nicknamed Chief Myers, uh, who was a, a standout catcher and uh, uh, and hitter uh, for one of the most prominent teams during that dead ball era, and that be the New York baseball giants. Uh, John McGraw is your manager, uh, and Chief, uh, nicknamed Chief Myers, was, uh, was the uh, battery mate of uh, legendary Hall of Famer uh, of that era, Christy Mathewson. Um, and uh, I, as we get into this conversation, you're going to hear a multi-layered uh, story uh, about why the, uh, uh, the, uh, the biography and the background and the, uh, the, the history of John Tortoise Chief Myers uh, was important. And again, one of which is uh, just an understanding of the dead ball era. So this is a great story in that context. Uh, it is also a very interesting story in the context of the fact that Myers, right, was one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, uh, Indian or Native American baseball players uh, of that era and, frankly, ever. And um, 
if you remember our episode number 14 with uh, with Bill Young, where we talked about J.L. Wilkinson and the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues, uh, we got very deep into some of the uh, problems, challenges, uh, hurdles, and, and issues relating to being African-American in playing baseball, uh, the integration of such and the challenges, some of which frankly still exist today, unfortunately. Um, but in many respects, this story about uh, uh, Myers as a Native American baseball player, if you will, breaking through, uh, it was almost a precursor to some of those African-American trials, if you will, uh, in the same thing around being prejudiced against uh, a uh, minority, uh, a, a misunderstood minority at that, uh, the uh, the challenges of having to integrate and to stand out and to push back against uh, being slighted and worse and using one's uh, prominence and fame uh, on occasion, uh, to, uh, uh, you, you know, as a platform to push back and perhaps educate and, uh, uh, and enlighten, uh, people in that process. So this is a very interesting story on a number of different fronts, and hopefully you will find it as interesting as I did. Uh, and, uh, we will get to that conversation about John Tortoise, quote unquote, chief Myers. And we'll get to the, the, the idea of why that nickname was either good or bad, depending on your perspective, uh, with our guest, Bill Young, our return visitor uh, in just a couple of seconds. So stay tuned for that. Before we get there, of course, though, I need to remind you that uh, we are sponsored under the good graces of our friends at Audible. And uh, you may be tired of hearing this, but I'm telling you if, you, if you haven't given it a try, the Audible audiobook service, uh, you really are doing yourself a disservice. We love our friends at Audible, and uh, a number of you have loved it as well enough to give it a try, and we encourage you to do so. It's, it's basically no risk. Uh, and if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, uh, you can uh, enjoy a 30-day free trial of the Audible service, as well as, most uh, most importantly, your own uh, choice of one of over 180,000 titles of your own audiobook to listen to and enjoy for that month period of time. Um, there's just a ridiculous amount of titles and, and uh and books that are available for you to choose from. And, um, you know, I think giving it a try and being able to uh, cancel at any time, including after that month, is uh, it's a no-risk way of, of enjoying and trying out what Audible uh, can offer for you as an audiobook uh, listener. So give it a try. It's audibletrial.com slash goodseats uh, for your free 30-day trial of Audible service and a free audiobook download for you to enjoy for that period of time. We thank you, Audible, and we thank you for giving it a try uh, as uh, in the in, a, in audience land. Thanks a lot. All right, so let's get to our chat with uh, Bill Young and uh, the conversation around uh, the uh, very interesting story and life uh, and times of John Tortoise Myers, Chief Myers of the old uh, New York Giants and the dead ball era of baseball coming up right at you. Well, I spent most of my growing up years in Oklahoma, a town called Ponca City, Oklahoma, which has its name because of the Ponca Indian tribe that had its uh, reservation, its agency there. So I, I got to know some um, Ponca kids when I was growing up, high school friends, and two things uh, really struck me uh, early on. That Number one was the pride they had in their, in their heritage. Uh, and secondly, the discrimination and prejudice that uh, they, they faced constantly. So uh, I went on to, to teach at the college level, and one of my interests uh, in teaching was Native American cultures, Native American history, particularly Native American religions. My field is religious studies. And so I taught a course on uh, 
Native American religions. I wrote a book uh, called Quest for Harmony, which is about Native American spiritual traditions. I've had a long-standing Native American cultures, uh, history, religion. And I took students up to South Dakota, to some of the Lakota uh, Sioux reservations. Uh, So that's on the one hand. Uh, On the other hand, I've always loved baseball. I grew up listening to Cardinals baseball from and I'm a number one Cardinals fan, but I was, secondly, probably was, was the Giants. So back to when I was growing up, Willie Mays was the was the star. So love the Giants, love the Cardinals, love baseball. So my uh, son and wife and I were in Cooperstown in 2008, uh, and we were in the Hall of Plaques and came across Albert Bender, also called Chief. He was. Uh, a Native American from Minnesota, and um, my son, Matt, said, why don't you book on uh, Albert Bender, Chief Bender? So looked into it, found that uh, there had been a couple, several good books that had just recently, in 2008, come out on uh, Chief Bender, Albert Bender, so uh, decided now, so began to look around, what other uh, Native American stars, they're really good, excellent of star quality players from the early years of baseball, the what we call the dead ball era between 1900 and 1920, had not been adequately uh, presented to the public. So it didn't take long to find uh, John Tortoise, T-O-R-T-E-S, uh, Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S, John Tortoise Myers, who uh, played on one of, with, with John McGraw, one of the best and famous managers of all time. Uh, he was the catch John Myers uh, and yeah, he always he preferred to be called uh, uh, John Myers. Uh, like most Native Americans, all most all were labeled chief, but uh, they didn't like it. It was not a. It was its, it's origin is back on. It's really pejorative. Uh, but uh, he he was a, a catcher. He caught Christy uh, Matthewson for years. Stayed with the Giants. Well, I'm sure we'll get into this, but so that's where I came from. So I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see what I can do with Myers. So I, I was able to contact his his relatives. He didn't have any children that we know of, uh, but he had grand nephew and a couple grand nieces that I contacted. And right off the bat, they told me about uh, the fact that he had pride in his Native American heritage and grew up for some of his early years. Uh, on the Santa Rosa Reservation in South, uh, Southern California. He's, Myers is a member of the Cahuilla uh, Nation, uh, C-A-H-U-I-L-L-A, pronounced Cahuilla, uh, member of one of the ten bands of the Cahuilla uh, Nation. So reached out to, to them. They gave me some great stories. Uh, found that the Cooperstown the library at Cooperstown National Baseball Hall of Fame had a great file, and they're really wonderful in terms of helping uh, people who are doing research. They they uh, they fact they copied all of Myers' file, which was not not insignificant, and, and and sent it to me. As we'll talk about, he spent a year at Dartmouth College. Myers did got to, got into the Dartmouth College archives. They were they were very helpful. One of the bands of the uh, Cahuilla tri- uh, tribe nation. Has a has a museum and a cultural center. They they got me material, and finally, um, I'm a member of SABRA, Society of American Baseball Research. Uh, 
they have great files. Uh, if you're a member, even if you're not, but if you're a member, you can really get access to, uh, to, to the material they have. So uh, there were a lot. There was a lot of good material. So this. Yeah, this, uh, and and we got. We got to remind our audience, like, so uh, episode thirteen, where we talk about uh, J. L. Wilkinson and the uh, Kansas City Monarchs and uh, right. Negro League baseball and stuff. It's it's a very dangerous thing to let uh, Bill Young into anything related to an, an archive or a library or a museum, <laughs> because uh, there's no doubt that uh, he will go deep and uh, and try to create a story or a book about it. And um, and I don't think this is uh, any different. And I I, I, I love research, so. Yeah. Writing well, can be painful. Research is fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's that's true, and we sort of uh, hear some of that in in our in our little journeys here. But so okay, so what what about Myers stuck out? Um, you know, as a figure mm-hmm. worthy of uh, focused uh, investigation, is it sure? Is it the fact that he's of of Native American heritage? Is it the fact that you know he was such a a, a crucial part of a uh, of a team, the New York Giants at the time during the dead ball era, which was uh, so successful and, and standout. Uh, what was it? Uh, was it a composite of all those things? What stood uh, out in your mind? The, the, the latter, really a, a composite of uh, all those things. So uh, start on the baseball side, uh, as we began to suggest, uh, he was a star for the, for the New York Giants. Uh, he, was a power hitter. He had a, a 291 lifetime average, which puts him, I think, seventh among among the. Uh, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but among Hall of Fame catchers, uh, he has an average uh, only exceeded by seven Hall of Fame catchers. Uh, so, power hitting catcher, uh, one of the first to be really called accurately a field general, where the catcher really is kind of the field general on the field. Uh, very, very, very smart uh, in terms of reading batters, helping pitchers. Uh, there was Christy Mathewson, uh, and then the other probably standout uh, giant pitcher at the time was Ruben Marquardt, who's also in the Hall of Fame. Marquardt had a lot of kind of anxieties, and, and uh, Myers really worked with him to help him become a, a, a truly excellent pitcher. Until, until uh, Marquardt got to the point that he cut, he won 19 in a row, and Myers was. Uh, was his catcher, outstanding baseball player, uh, big guy, t- t- six feet, t- about two hundred pounds, really big for the time, and but he could still steal bases, uh, and this was you know the era in which that was considered not, not anymore today, but uh, stealing bases, moving runners along, that was all part of what was called inside baseball, the scientific game, which uh, which McGraw uh, is famous for uh, championing. So number one, a great great baseball player who deserves recognition simply for his contributions to uh to baseball well before we before uh, secondly, we get yeah i would say before we get there i also want to put that in context right because um we're uh, and we'll get into how uh, he became a member of the new york giants and and, and the the prominence sure. of the giants at the time but uh, maybe you can uh, in addition to going further about uh why myers uh a little bit of sort of the the dead ball era of the uh, of the teens, I guess the 1910s, etc., um, and yeah, the, the dynamic of yeah. the first two decades of the 20th century is, is, is the dead is the dead ball era. It's called dead ball because the uh, ball was literally uh, not as live as it as it eventually became, and the reason was that they uh, they didn't take balls out of play. My people, the ball went into the stands, it got thrown back in. Balls got scuffed up, they got dirty. Uh, Spitball was still a legal pitch until 1920, so they. Balls got all uh, 
stained and marked up, and, and uh, they they just didn't go as far. They, the home runs were uh, a rare. You know, somebody who hit five, six, seven home runs a season was considered uh, uh, doing doing well. Uh, so you had to move runners along. You had to, uh, you know, kind of the one one big name of the dead ball era is Wee Willie Keeler of the Orioles, who famously said, "Hit them where they ain't." Uh, you know, poke the ball uh, between between positions. I guess they didn't have the shift back then. But um, so move runners along. As I said, bunt bunt runners along. Uh, that's that's the dead ball era uh, where you're. Uh, and and McGraw, as the New York Giants manager, is orchestrating this. Uh, he's the impresario on the third base coaching box. He's calling every move, uh, and. Uh, some some players didn't like him at all, hated him. In fact, uh, one of Meyer's teammates was the famous Jim Thorpe from uh, another Native American, and Thorpe hated 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 McGraw. But Myers really felt that uh, he was uh, he thrived on his uh, his his very involved, very hands-on managing managing style. So the baseball player, the other big thing I'd say is looking at. Uh, Myers Native American heritage. This is the time, early 1900s, when there's increasing pressure to assimilate Native Americans into the dominant white society. Uh, try to get them to turn away from their traditional culture, religions, values, uh, give up their traditional land, uh, take take uh, allotted allotments of land rather than have collective land ownership, uh, and. Uh, Native Americans in baseball were held up as an example of uh, the of the uh, melting pot uh, myth that didn't matter what background you came from, didn't matter Italian, uh, German, Irish, or Native American. If you could play baseball, you were in. Of course, <laughs> this was this was what for 45, 50 years before, almost fifty years before uh, blacks were allowed to play. And Native Americans playing baseball were subjected to really intense uh, prejudice, discrimination, uh, beginning with the beginning with the moniker chief, which uh, is basically equivalent to a, a, calling a Native American boy, uh, calling an African American uh, boy. It's not. It, it became a more benign term, I guess you could argue, but at least in origin, it's really quite racist. Uh, so that's why there's so much, so much opposition to, uh, uh, like the Kansas City Chief or the Washington Redskins. These, these are these are still painful, painful for a lot of uh, a lot of Native Americans. So, against that background, Myers stood out as someone who, uh, other Native American ballplayers tended to turn away from their heritage. Bender, for example, uh, never really went back to Minnesota. He didn't. Uh, Make much of his Native American heritage. Myers, on the other hand, drew extensively on his uh, Kuya heritage uh, for the values that he lived by. He went back after his baseball career was over and became a leader uh, among the people. So he stands out as someone who stood up against the prejudice, uh, had a lot of pride and strength that he drew from his uh, Native American uh, background. Other Native American ball players, uh, the first was Francis Suck Alexis, played for Cleveland. Um, he didn't last very long because uh, of the prejudice he experienced, and he gave in to uh, alcohol 
abuse that that plagued Jim Thorpe. Albert Bender was affected. Uh, Myers never was. He he uh, he stood proud, uh, and uh, that needs to be that needs that needs to, uh, very definitely uh, to be recognized. And, see, it's interesting because it almost you know obviously the uh, the, the trials and travails of. Uh of the African-American player, not only in baseball, but in sports in general, of course, and the assimilation and the prejudice and all those, all those things, very, you know, very pronounced and, and, and a huge spotlight uh, in the decades, uh, you know, around all of that. Right. But but in many respects, you're actually suggesting or perhaps um, uh, uh, isolating a, 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 a case of, of this even prior to that. Right. Which was of a of a previous generation of similarly slighted uh, minorities, in this case, uh, Native Americans. Yeah, very definitely. Yeah. Yeah, there were uh, really two pronounced stereotypes that Native Americans had to contend with, not only in baseball, but but other sports. Uh, one was that uh, it was the what, what sometimes is called the savage warrior stereotype, that since Native Americans came from savage societies, they would they would carry that savage mentality onto the ball field. So how were they greeted when they came onto the field with war hoops and and the tomahawk chop, tomahawk chop that still is part of uh, Atlanta Braves uh, tradition? Uh, that was to, to call forth that kind of uh, you know these are these are the savage warriors. But the other stereotype was that uh, of the so-called good Indian, the smiling Indian, the happy Indian who is always always up, always positive, and uh, the you know, the Chief Wahoo image, think of Chief Wahoo, the Cleveland Indians uh, uh, symbol to this day uh, with, the, with the big shining grin. That, that harkens back to uh, what's called the good Indian or the happy Indian stereotype. So that's, that's what people like, that's what players like Myers had to contend with. Uh, hearing chants like dirty red skin, dumb Indian, go back to the reservation. This was constant, uh, and they had to uh, they had to cope with it and and, and uh, go about their business on the baseball field, not pay attention to it for the most part. Uh, it was tough. It was tough. So just like Jackie Robinson and uh, Larry Doby and the, and the first African Americans baseball in the forties, uh, same sort of thing. All the same, all the time that the the, the promotion, the official narrative is that oh, this is demonstrating. Uh, uh, the American uh, melt that America is a melting pot. Uh, baseball is a, a leading example. So, some some historical revisionism, I guess. So okay, so let's uh, before let's um, let's go back a bit to uh, uh, Myers's uh, childhood. How how did he get sure. involved in baseball altogether? And then perhaps his baseball journey into was, uh, yeah. baseball was introduced to Native Americans pretty early. Uh, as one of the tools of assimilation, we'll get the get the uh, young 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 Indian boys to uh, embrace the uh, the white man's game. So on the Santa Rosa Reservation for Myers, when he was there, he was playing ball when he was a little kid on the reservation, uh, and then he found out it was good. Uh, he uh, started playing semi-pro pro baseball when he was still a teenager. Uh, early on, he he. he Played against the fam- famous Walter Johnson, uh, uh, big train of one of the best pitchers, and had uh, encounters with him over the years. So, among other things, Myers was interacting with uh, 
the greats of, of baseball of that era, from Grover Cleveland Alexander to Christy Matthewson to Walter Johnson to on, on and on. So in 1905, he's 25 years old. He was born in 1880. Uh, he got a big break. He was at a baseball tournament in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there was a team in the tournament that had a player from Dartmouth College. And Dartmouth College, uh, in its origin, had a commitment to educate Native Americans. They'd kind of gotten away from it uh, uh, by early 20th century, really never had embraced it very, very fully. But this player uh, from Dartmouth says, I, I think we have Native American scholarships. So he convinces Myers to go back all the way from Albuquerque to uh, New Hampshire to, to Dartmouth. And uh, Myers ends up spending a year at Dartmouth. Uh, never plays baseball because they find out that he uh, had a uh, had played semi pro pro ball had 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 a professional background. They try to recruit him for the football team because he's big, and uh, it's there that he gets the he gets the label Big Chief uh, probably for the for the first time. Um, so he he doesn't he's not able to play uh, at Dartmouth. He one of his big regrets throughout his whole life is that he leaves Dartmouth after a year. His mother's ill. He gets an opportunity to play professional ball and make some money in Harrisburg, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania first. Uh, and then his career takes off. He ends up playing in St. Paul uh, in the American Association. And John McGraw spots him, uh, is willing to pay $6,000 for his contract, which is about 150000 today. So by 1908, he's in the major leagues. So what was it that um, that John McGraw, obviously a very key figure, not only about oh. uh, the Giants and baseball at that time, but also uh, in in this uh, in his discovery? Uh, how how does he discover Myers and or uh, maybe is there any sort of story as to sort of what? Yeah, well, he his radar. Uh, he he is a uh, he and Branch Rickey probably the two great uh, and Connie Mack are the great. Uh, uh, Baseball talent uh, whispers, or what do you want to call it? They they spot baseball talent, and uh, McGraw, although he's pretty much a uh, you know has all the prejudices of the era himself, uh, reaches out to uh, uh, people who don't have the opportunity, uh, farm farm boys, and and uh, in Myers' case, a uh, Native American. Even McGraw is famous for even trying to sneak a, an African American. When he was with the Baltimore Orioles, onto the onto the Baltimore Orioles team, that uh, uh, so he just he loved he he wanted the best players on the field. He he would have there's he would have signed he would have signed blacks if he was uh, if he was able to do it. Uh, so he signs him in 1908, brings him up, and what McGraw typically did with young players is sit him on the bench next to him and watch. So through the he was signed in the summer of 1908 through the fall of 1908 he sits on the bench with McGraw and watches and he sees in September 1908 one of the most famous games in baseball history the famous Merkel game in which uh, Fred Merkel the rookie first baseman committed a committed a blunder that cost uh, the uh, the Giants ultimately probably cost them the the pennant losing losing to the Cubs who uh, we know in 1908 won the World Series for the last time <laughs> until well, 19 to 2016. So uh, lots of interesting tidbits along the way. Yeah, uh, we're referring to, I think it's also known as Merkel's Boner, which, Merkel's uh, you know. Merkel's Boner, that's yeah, what it was there called. There you go. That's, that's, and, and, the, and, and the phrase, the, Merkel became a verb 
that meant to arrive late because he didn't he didn't touch second base instead of he hit a single. The rules say you have to you have to. Uh, I guess he was on first base, and he, he the rule is that you have to reach the next base uh, or 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 the play is dead. The, uh, and he didn't get to second base. He took off for the clubhouse instead, which was common practice at the time. But Johnny Evers of the Cubs, smart ball player that he is, uh, called the umpire's attention to it. So yeah, the the famous Merkel play. But here's 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 McGraw. McGraw Merkel comes in tears to McGraw and says, "I've you know I he's a young guy. I I I, I messed it up. You know, get rid of me for the good of the team." And and McGraw said, "Heck no! Uh, you're just the kind of player I want. I'm going to give you a raise." And he stays and becomes has a really great a great career. Uh, but uh, Myers, right, uh, essentially on the bench that year, right? He didn't get any real playing time. Well, he in didn't get any playing time in fall of 1908. So he really, he becomes uh, he, he becomes the catcher in 1909. Roger Bresnahan is the uh, Giants catcher in 1908. And uh, McGraw, who like Branch Rickey, always was ready to uh, let players go when he thought they had reached their peak. Uh, and he also was a friend of Bresnahan and their opportunity came up to for Bresnahan to manage the St. Louis Cardinals and be player manager. So uh, McGraw trades Bresnahan to the Cardinals, recognizing he's got this talented young catcher in Myers, and that's indeed what happens. He comes, so he becomes full-time catcher in 1909. That continues through 1915. In 19, you know, just to get a sense of how great he was in 1912, he has a. Uh, he has a 357-8 average, which was the highest for a major league catcher until Mike Piazza uh, and uh, and then Joe Maurer had 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 averages above that. But you know, he's a really good ball player. Why was he traded? Why was uh, uh, Myers traded or Bresnahan? Bre- Bresnahan, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bresnahan. Well, there's a famous story that. Uh, uh, Bresnahan is talking to McGraw, and they're talking about uh, uh, the team. And Bresnahan says, "Look, maybe maybe he wants to be traded, but he says, look, John, uh, or he wouldn't have called him John. Look, Mr. McGraw, here's here's a player every bit as good as me. He's a better hitter. He's he's gonna be, he's gonna be just as good a fielder. So um, you got you got the catcher of the future, and so that's why that's why McGraw let Bresnahan go." Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, 
that could be interesting to our audience here is called the National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. So in steps Myers for the next season and um, pretty much uh, uh, effortlessly, it seems, uh, in terms of uh, his ability, not only in the field, but also behind the plate in terms of of hitting. Uh, Yeah, very definitely. From the very from from the outside, he's hitting uh, his average in 1909 is 277, 280 and 10. And then he has three really great years where he bats 352, 332, 358, uh, 312. And um, so he he's among the pinnacle power hitters. He's recognized uh, some groups who have tried to figure out who are the best players of that era as the best catcher of the uh, of the dead ball dead ball era. He, he he had a nine-year career. It's you know ten years to qualify for the for the Hall of Fame. So there's there is there's a group uh, who thinks that uh, the Veterans Committee, which was not constrained by that, uh, should give him a, uh, a look as for a, for the Hall of Fame. I, I don't think that's going to happen. There's the, uh, maybe he doesn't quite have the stats, but. Uh, Certainly one of the best of the time of the era. Well, let's also put this in context, right? Because John McGraw, uh, again, you know, uh, was uh, not only a, a standout player and obviously a, a member of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, but uh, had a, a very long and extended, um, mostly uh, unimpeded uh, managerial career uh, mm-hmm. prior to the Giants, but mostly with the Giants from 1902 to 1932, almost interrupt- yeah. on interruptions. Second, right? second most wins of any manager next to Connie Mack. Right. So that's almost a, an uninterrupted 30 or so years of, of managerial yep. success, including three yep. World Series championships, including 1905, right, at where, you know, so yep. they're, a, they, they're a constant uh, team in the mix. Oh, and, yeah, definitely. The, Giant, the Giants of that era is one of the all-time best teams, yeah. So so having quality players and seeing someone like Myers, I mean, you know, in some respects, right, uh, uh, you know, Myers – clearly not only stood out in, in McGraw's mind, but to be able to be part of, of a team that was constantly in the mix for success and titles and all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe you can kind of explain a little bit about how Myers and Mathewson, Christy Mathewson, uh, I was a very famous pitcher of the time, how they mm-hmm. hooked up, right? Because uh, that's a battery that uh, was very successful for quite a bit of time. Uh, very, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, you know, that's an interesting question that I try to explore in the book is um, – Myers' relationship with, on the one hand, McGraw, and his relationship with Mathewson on, on the other. Uh, speaking directly to Mathewson, uh, they did become close. Uh, the only time that Mathewson uh, ever, uh, ball players of the era, particularly if they were stars, were given the opportunity to, to go on to vaudeville. And uh, so when Mathewson got the opportunity in 1910 to uh, do a vaudeville show, kind of reluctantly, didn't really think. He was up for it, and, and, and he only did it that one year. But he uh, he had Myers come come with him and benefit financially from 
from uh, being on the uh, in this Broadway skit in in which Myers plays the savage Indian, <laughs> stereotypically. Uh, but uh, I think maybe the couple primary reasons that they became close was uh, Magician recognized this is a great catcher. I can have real success with him. Uh, the, the chief and I are good. Uh, secondly, they were both college educated. Uh, Matthewson was a very bright guy. Went to Bucknell uh, University. Myers only spent a year at Dartmouth, but in that year he became uh, a lover of philosophy, art, literature. Through the rest of his career, when his teammates were going, you know, to to bars and taverns, he was going to art museums. Uh, so a real connoisseur of uh, of, of art, literature, read like to read philosophy. So intellectually, Myers and uh, Matthewson clicked. And thirdly, I think uh, Matthewson was kind of a loner uh, on the Giants. Uh, uh, the other players uh, kind of saw him as someone who kind of stayed to himself. Myers similarly was was, was rather taciturn uh, and kind of a loner. They kind of gravitated uh, toward each other. And Matthewson came from a very strong religious background uh, and with values of, of, you know, being concerned about other people. So he undoubtedly uh, recognized the uh, and saw the prejudices and that Myers was facing and, and befriended him in part because of uh, because of that. Uh, McGraw, I think, uh, Myers' father, who was a Civil War, his father was white, his mother was was uh, uh, full-blood Kuya. Uh, his his father died young, or died when Myers was young, and to some extent, McGraw was was the kind of a father figure for for Myers. Uh, but they did get along well, and Myers was able to overlook uh, McGraw's. Uh, he had a terrible temper, and uh, yeah, but they he he a book I'd certainly recommend to any baseball fan if they haven't encountered it yet is it's called The Glory of Their Times by Lawrence Ritter and published in 1966 and it's just the stories of uh, most player most of the players are from the dead ball era and it's just their stories he, he went around the country interviewing these guys before they died and one of them is Myers so you get the full picture of Myers take on Matchison on, on uh, McGraw uh, yeah Lawrence Ritter the, the the glory of their times and it's part of it's out in CD so you can actually hear the hear Myers voice in, in some of the some of the interviews so there's McGraw and uh, Matthewson uh, with 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 Myers. So he was part of one of the storied teams uh, of all times, so the Giants in those early years. So the um, uh, the the um, uh, the the story around um, Myers is that as a player, he was. Um, I think you're kind of alluding to this. He was he's kind of a student of the game, right? In terms of his ability Pretty to predict yeah, pitches he, and locations and he, stuff. And maybe Matthewson saw benefit in that. Well, I was going to say, ben, I think it seems like Matthewson recognized, perhaps because of this connection between the Good two point. of them, right? That you know, he's he's got some intelligence around how to frame the ball and p- the positioning of pitches and and you calling and that kind of stuff, right? You got it. They were that should be said. They were both students. Students of the game, when that phrase was uh, not that, not you know, that wasn't a phrase used a lot. Uh, so uh, Matthew and they brought out the best in one another. Matthew and Myers brought out the best in Matthew, so Matthewson brought out the best in, in Myers. No question. 
I think it's also interesting. Myers actually published yeah. a series of articles uh, in the New York American, uh, uh, where D- Damon Runyon was uh, one of the was the, was was a writer, uh, and uh, he he one of the articles is on kind of the science of hitting, another one's on the science of catching. So, uh, yeah, he was he could have been a manager. He should have been a manager. Uh, never had the opportunity. Well, he had a minor league opportunity to be a manager. It didn't last very long. That's interesting. So it's almost like it's almost like a, a a Joe Madden type, if you will, almost. Uh, yeah, I gotcha. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, generation before. Well, he was also a very uh, uh, strong hitter, right? So in 1912, in particular, I, uh, if I have this correct, Myers was uh, third in the MVP uh, balloting. Third in and, the MVP. And, Back yeah. in the time when it was called the Chalmers Award, you got a uh, there was a, a a car called the Chalmers, whatever, whatever, and you got a you got a vehicle. So he was. He was third behind uh, his teammate Larry Doyle, and if you look at Meyer's stats, I think they're, you know, in fairness, they're they're better than Doyle's. I'm not sure why Doyle got the, got got the got the award. All right, let's well, so, so let's get back to um, so so clearly on the field as a uh, as a battery mate of of one of uh, the leagues and and uh, a Hall of Fame pitcher as well yeah, as behind the plate in terms class of, his, of the Hall of Fame, yeah, right. Um, so. Let's get back. Let's talk to about the. Um, it's clear that he made some good copy, right, for the for the newspaper writers, right? So. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, how did he kind of ingratiate himself? I, I, it doesn't seem to me like he would be the type to sort of go out looking for press coverage. But how did that sort of persona? Because it seems like that was certainly part of his his mix being part well, of this team yeah, too. Yeah, that's good to get into that. Um, I mentioned that he really drew upon his Native American heritage, uh, and. Uh, part of that is uh, the use of humor to uh, kind of uh, deal with uh, situations of, of uh, discrimination and, and prejudice. So he, Myers certainly had a certainly had a wry humor. My, my, one of my favorite stories is that uh, late in his career, uh, his hand was all uh, gnarled from uh, from catching uh, and. Uh, so a reporter asked him. He, he was he had begun signing uh, signing with his left hand because uh, his right hand was gnarled. Signing autographs with his left hand, and and uh, so a reporter asked him why were 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 are Native Americans left-handed? <laughs> and Mars says yes. It, it goes back to the time when uh, we were signing treaties with a white man, and uh, we had to hold a tomahawk in our right hand. Because uh, we couldn't trust the couldn't trust the people we were signing treaties with, and so we had to sign with our left hand. So that's why all Native Americans are left-handed. Uh, right humor, <laughs> I guess. Interesting. So he was full of stories like that. Late in his life, when he's in his 80s, uh, he's kind of gained new recognition because of his being included in uh, uh, Larry Ritter's uh, Lawrence Ritter's book, uh, Glory of Their Times. So uh, I begin the book with a incident that happened uh, in 1966 when uh, Casey Stengel was uh, managing the, the Mets, and Casey Stengel goes back with Myers to 1916 when both were playing for uh, the Baltimore, uh, Baltimore Brooklyn uh, Dodgers or the Brooklyn Robins as they were called then because of their manager Wilbert Robertson, uh, and. Uh, Myers comes to see the Mets play in in New York, and uh, uh, 
I won't get into it because it's a little. Uh, I won't get into the actual story, but he, he pulls a couple re- really uh, funny uh, incidents uh, at, uh, at when he's at when he's at Met Stadium. Interesting. Uses humor, um, but also draws upon. Uh, there's a, one of the basic values of of his culture, the Kuya culture, is. Uh, uh, that there's a power, there's a there's a there's a power that that you can draw on uh, to make the make the best of the worst situations, and uh, Meyer certainly did that. As I said, when he left uh, when he left baseball, he went back to California. To, he, was, he was from the Riverside area, went back to uh, the reservation, became a leader, and uh, ironically, uh, he. he he would tell reporters when they asked him, "Was he a chief? You're called chief. Were you a chief of your tribe?" And he said, "No, I was. I, I, I was never. A, uh, every once in a while, he would say, yes, I was a chief, but uh, only when he was uh, uh, trying to be funny.' Uh, but he became uh, the a police chief in the in the uh, uh, for the mission agency, the group of group of tribes in Southern California. So he." Late in life, he was um, he was uh, well into his uh, near retirement. He became a he became a legitimate chief. So, um, I, when his uh, his presence sort of became kind of uh, common in in the press in, in New York, obviously, not only was he sort of uh, uh, you know overwhelming he appeared, he folks. He appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. He, he appeared on the Today Show. You're kidding. So he was uh, he was a media personality there for a little bit. Thanks to the thanks to the glory of their times. Very interesting. So that was almost a rediscovery, I guess, of his, his he story. Re- he he loved to recite Casey at the Bat, which he did for kids on the uh, Santa Rosa Reservation. His grand nieces and grand nephew were, were, were remember him. Uh, he had a, uh, a booming kind of very deep, very uh, uh, polished voice. Uh, almost, I, reporters often said he sounds like a college professor. His vocabulary and, and tone sounds like he sounds like he's a college professor. But he would recite Casey at the bat. He did that on the Today Show, for example. I'd love to. I, I tried to. I couldn't run down a. Uh, 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 I guess I didn't have videotape back then, but uh, uh, of that. But if that's on the that's on the CD that's available. You can hear Myers reciting Casey at the bat. Well, it's clear he also got a bit of a taste of uh, a performing, I and mean, we we alluded oh, to yeah. it before, but maybe we can get a little bit more into this, right? So there, so this this idea that vaudeville, right, back in the in the teens, right, was uh, obviously the mm-hmm. preeminent form of of uh, of entertainment uh, back Popular in the day, entertainment, sure, right. And um, so I, you know, if I'm not mistaken, it was the, the the initial sketch that he and and Matthewson were part of was was called Curves, Curves, right. A, Occurred in uh, in uh, uh, October of of uh, nineteen ten, uh, right, per- performed in um, Hammerstein's Victoria Theater, which I guess is in right. New York. Yeah, he, he, they took it on the road. They went they they went to a variety of places. So what I mean, okay. So I, I'm trying to get into into the the mindset here of not only the time and the era, but also of Myers, right? So mm-hmm. you kind of I think it could be described or construed as almost a minstrel like yeah. uh, performance, well, as I right? Said, he, um, the uh, curves was uh, a little vignette in which uh, you know you can kind of picture this in vaudeville where there's a uh, maiden in distress uh, and uh, being threatened by the uh, by the wild Indian 
uh, who's Myers, and uh, Mathewson comes and chases him away with a baseball bat. That's basically it. Uh, so I guess I have some trouble picturing Myers being willing to do that. Um, Why do you he, think he did? Uh, I think two reasons. One, he trusted Christy Mathewson, uh, that Christy would not, uh, the Christian gentleman, as Mathewson would call, would, would expose him to, to anything that was that he shouldn't do. Uh, and secondly, money. I mean, they, they were, you'd get a full year salary almost through for doing a month of vaudeville. Uh, so it was lucrative. But uh, they did it the one season. Uh, Matheson may be recognizing that uh, it just wasn't appropriate. Uh, his out was, you know, I'm not a good actor and this is, I, this is not for me. And Myers never did another vaudeville uh, show, just that one, that one year. So maybe he didn't real may he didn't he may not even have known the uh, the the script when he agreed to do it but yeah that is something that uh, is troublesome that he would agree, would agree to do that but uh, he came to accept being called chief he, in fact even he signed he signed his autograph chief although he knew well and when he came up in 1909 uh, he asked reporters please use my name my name is John Tortoise Myers or Jack if you want to call me that. My name is not Chief. My first name is not Chief. Please don't call me Chief. And, of course, it went right ahead and uh, used, used it. And he finally just came to accept that this is the way it is. Yeah, it almost, but look, it also seems, too, that there's so maybe a bit of um, purposefulness, right, in this, right? So uh, in some respects, right, you, you, we mentioned it before, right, here is one of sort of the most, at the time, most prominent Native American players in sports and obviously we talked about yep. jim thorpe and that's another yep. episode Along with uh you know the the three most prominent are bender uh myers and, and thorpe thorpe never had that much success in baseball bender one of the great pitchers for the philadelphia athletics connie max uh chosen for the hall of fame by the veterans committee Right, and we uh, and episode our episode number twenty seven about uh, Jim Thorpe and his uh, days with the NFL, the Oorang Indians, with our friend Chris Willis. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he was Films. a much better football player than baseball. Right, player. but so, but I almost, it almost, I also get the sense too, and especially now that you're you're referencing um, uh, uh, Myers's later sort of rediscovery, I guess, in in terms of uh, television appearances and whatnot, it's almost uh, maybe purposeful in that uh it, it is to use his fame and his, his celebrity quotage right to effectively work on shaping or or evolving i guess the sort of preconceived notions of what a quote-unquote native american is right. and was yeah yeah very definitely I, I agree with that it was there was a certain amount of purposefulness uh to it on, on his part in his interview with uh Lawrence Ritter for Glory of Their Times and, and some material I was I was able to find uh, with uh, Ritter talking about the interview process. He said he had a really tough time uh, getting the interview started with uh, Myers because Myers was really wary that he was it was going to be another example of uh, somebody trying to do a stereotypical take on Native Americans in in baseball. Uh, well, when he found that Ritter was genuinely interested in him as a person and his experience in baseball, uh, he spoke freely. And one of the things he said was that uh, Native American, and this he's this, he, he's eighty, he's in his eighties when he's when he's uh, interviewed by 
by Ritter that Native Americans have have and still endure a great deal of, of prejudice. So he was certainly doing what he could uh, uh, to counter that. But in his interview with Ritter, he told Ritter, I guess I'm like the venerable old warrior chief of the great six nations, that would be the Iroquois, who announced his retirement by saying, I'm like an old hemlock. My head is still high, but the winds of close to 100 winters have whistled through my branches, and I have been witness to many wondrous things and many tragic things. My eyes perceive the present, but my roots are embedded deeply in the grandeur of the past. That was Myers <laughs> late in life. Yeah. So what do you th- what do you think the legacy then is? Because it's not like there was a huge rush of Native American players that came into baseball after. No, unfortunately, him. you know this. Uh, there was a lot of writing and in in, among reporters speculating why Native Americans got into baseball, what they what they uh, what they had to bring, and mostly it was the stereotypical notion that these are the the phrase was the sons of the forest have brought their savage instincts to the ball field. But one of the one of the myths that we're talking about later in Myers' career, 1915 approximately thereabouts what's called the myth of the vanishing Indian gets popularized. I mean, there's, there's a famous statue of a, of an Indian bowed, an Indian warrior bowed over on his pony. It kind of symbolizes the passing, the moving into the past of the great uh, native American leaders and cultures of the past. And they're fading away. They're dying off. Uh, and in terms of baseball, there's a smattering of uh, native Americans in major league baseball. Uh, some of, some of the best, uh, Allie Reynolds of the of, of the Yankees, nineteen in the fifties, he's called Super Chief. <laughs> uh, and as we move to the present, uh, the, 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 there are, in, in recent years there are the, the kind of the, the three Native Americans in Major League Baseball have been uh, Joe B. Chamberlain, who played for the Yankees mostly, Kyle Loesch, who, who played for a variety of teams, including the Cardinals, and last, the only Native American I'm aware of still in, in Major League Baseball is. Jacoby Ellsbury, uh, for what for the for the Yankees? Uh, so why is that? Well, uh, they haven't played a lot of college ball. Most Native Americans they haven't been given the opportunity. Uh, Major League Baseball has had a program to try to foster inner city talent. No, no similar program on, on on reservations or in among among Native American communities. Uh, kind of shut out to some extent. Uh, of baseball, uh, not the re- not given the recognition uh, that, that they certainly do. Myers legacy. Uh, well, let me let me just uh, read something that uh, someone wrote about uh, Myers early in his career, but it uh, it it could just as well be a, an epitaph. Uh, a strong love of justice, a lightning sense of humor. Uh, a fund of general information that runs from politics to Plato, a quiet, a quick logical mind and the self-contained dignified poise that is the hallmark of good breeding. He is easily the most remarkable ball player in the big leagues. So that's the legacy. But uh, unfortunately, most recently uh, when uh, Myers was kind of came up in, in popular writing, it was in Adam Gopnik, Gopnik's, um, Wrote a series of articles, essays in the New Yorker called the the, the Rookie, and uh, one of them is called the Rookie, and uh, it's published in a collection called Moon Over Paris, I believe. 
Well, he portrays uh, Myers as a as someone who hangs out at Irish taverns and, and uh, not the cultured uh, person that, that he was. So the struggle goes on. I will say that you know Dartmouth uh, is now one of the leading colleges that, in terms of Native American students, Native American programs. So that happened just as Myers Myers died in 1966, so just, or 71, just as Myers was in his last years. Dartmouth beca- began to reclaim its its proper role as, as as a leader in Native American education. So that continues to this day. Dartmouth is is probably at at the forefront of Native American education. So he's had a mark, he leaves a mark and uh for uh young Native Americans who uh are looking for role models in in sports or just in general. I certain I think he certainly certainly stands out. And why, again, is he not uh, uh, in the uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame? Was it because he was, did had he had such a, 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 a short amount of time in, in league? Well, the quantitative answer is he only played nine seasons. Okay. But my understanding is that, that that's not a limitation for the for the uh, Veterans Committee. If the Veterans, the Veterans Committee could, if it chose, uh, give him consideration. And a few years ago, there was a there was a discussion on the Internet on one of the sites that rates people for the Hall of Fame. Uh, and it went back and forth. And the argument for putting him in the Hall of Fame is, as I said, he's his career batting average is, is Hall of Fame caliber. Uh, his intellect, his role in, in, in uh, handling pitchers, uh, what we haven't gotten into one area where he was quite prominent. He was one of the first, one of the early advocates of players' rights. Uh, was chosen by his teammates when there was uh, a need to, to go to management uh, to uh, present the player's case. He was looked upon as someone that they trusted to do that. Uh, player's advocate, uh, the fact that off the field he was one of the groundbreakers uh, in terms of uh, minorities' participation in, in baseball, not only participation but, but great success. Uh, so I think for those reasons, uh, he should be given Hall of Fame consideration, but he's kind of faded. <laughs> he's faded away. Uh, uh, it's not likely. There's not really a, there's not really a contingent uh, group of people making it, making his case. I try to do it in the book, but uh, uh, so no, he's, he's not going to get into the Hall of Fame, but he certainly need, deserves recognition as uh, one of the one of the best. Well, it seems that uh, if there was any opportunity for some groundswell for him and frankly, a, a bunch of other players, it probably would have been in the mid 60s when uh, Lawrence Ritter's um, book, The Glory of Their Times, came out, because it seems like that's when uh, it renewed well, some spotlight, uh, right? Was chosen and people say it's largely because of uh, his being featured in uh Glory of the Times, uh, or maybe a couple of others. Um, names not coming to me that people say, yeah, it's because Lawrence Ritter uh, gave them recognition that, that, that they made it in. But for whatever reason, uh, uh, Myers has not been included in that in that group. Well, let's uh, let's uh, remind our audience about uh, about your book and that book. Perhaps Amazon will probably recommend both of them at the same time, and I think I would yeah, too. Yeah, both pop up. Yeah, right. So. Um, Bill Young's book is called John Tortoise Chief Myers, a baseball biography. It is published by our friends at McFarland. Uh, it is available wherever uh, fine books are found, of course, on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just look for the episode 
uh, of this episode, and you will see uh, a link, a couple of links to how to buy that book. And that other book that we did reference uh, that came out in uh, 1966, excuse me, 1966, he says, uh, is called The Glory of Their Times, and that was written by Lawrence Ritter. And, um, I, you know, Chief Myers uh, is uh, uh, one of the um, uh, dozens of uh, baseball players that are interviewed in that, and I think it's a, right. probably a good yin and yang of understanding the more full, rich uh, story of, right. uh, of Myers and his story, right? Definitely. Yeah, and I th- will put it out to our audience uh, for those uh, uh, enmeshed in this uh, conversation about uh, maybe finding some of his uh, Myers's appearances on either the Today Show or the uh, some of these other uh, uh, television shows. And unfortunately, uh, as an aficionado of some of those uh, of those uh, old shows, you know, the lot not a lot of those things still exist. They were either yeah. taped over or uh, discarded, and uh, the value of such. But uh, I wonder out there. If we can find some uh, some footage of uh, of Myers regaling some of his stories and his intellect, uh, especially after his rediscovery uh, in the '60s. Um, well, just that that yeah. CD, that set of CDs, which is available on on the Glory of the Times, it gives a number of the stories from that book, a number of the the people being interviewed, and just to hear uh, Myers' voice, that that is a real treat. Well, we will have a link to that uh, that book and CD as well uh, on our site. Uh, so, Bill, tell us. We, you, this is the second time you've been here on the show, and obviously, uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, my my pleasure. And and obviously, like I said before, if you run a museum or a uh, a library, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> make sure you have extra security around because Bill is probably <laughs> knocking on the door trying to get in and maybe write another book. Do you have any other topics that you're thinking about or threatening to? Well, you know, my about? my more recent book, uh, the Myers book, came out first, and then J. O. Wilkinson and the Kansas City Monarchs, which is about the first. Uh, white owner of a team in the Negro Leagues. Uh, Episode 14, if you uh, want to go back in the archives of our show. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, great. I had a great time talking about that one. Uh, it's called Trailblazers in Black Baseball is the subtitle. Uh, but that's, I've retained my interest in, in the Monarchs. So there were uh, 14 uh, players and Wilkinson uh, executive associated with the Monarchs who were in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, but by far the most of any of the Negro League teams. So I'm working now on, a, on a, maybe a project to uh, tell the stories of those 14, uh, a chapter on each of the monarchs who are in the Hall of Fame. So was, that's what I'm working on now. All right. Well, we look forward to staying in touch, hearing more about that. And um, and indeed, uh, I, well, hopefully we'll sh- shine a few more spotlights on some other stories in the dead ball era, which is, you know, part of the rich tapestry that is baseball history in this country. I think you call it small ball today, but it's, uh, you know, yep. it's, all about, it's often called small ball. Yeah, yeah, it's strategy and it's it's not just about power and hitting and home runs and and and, and those kinds of things. It's uh, it's it's really, really manufacturing strategy. range. Yeah. yeah, it's where strategy comes into play. And, and arguably baseball is a very strategic game, always has been. And uh, in many respects, uh, the that those decades of the 1910s, 1920s, called the dead ball era, but essentially was kind of the, I think the real, um, the heyday of, uh, of how strategy became such an uh, integral part, uh, of what is yeah, now a modern and, day game of baseball. And, and yeah. And John McGraw, you had, had the premier, st- uh, strategist. And John McGraw in particular, the New York giants, gen- maybe generally is obviously an area we'd love to spend a little bit more time on and, uh, and Definitely. maybe we will. So thank you very much, Bill. Always, always a pleasure, and thank you for uh, coming back for uh, a repeat You're visit. doing a great job. I really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. 
I thank you so much for that interesting conversation. Bill Young, thank you for coming back to our show and uh, and talking about, uh, I think, a very rich and interesting story uh, on a number of different levels. I think the uh, the story of John Tortoise, Chief Myers, is, is interesting just as a biography, uh, no doubt. Some very interesting things that he did, uh, the sort of erudite ways uh, of uh, probably unexpected, I guess, as a, of a player of, of Native American origin, uh, sort of a thinking man's uh, approach to the baseball uh, game, especially at that time when uh, it was not necessarily a cerebral game. Uh, but as we sort of discussed, it's also a, a, a rich example, I guess, of some of the uh, uh, of the era of the dead ball uh, era. We know in the 1910s and 1920s when strategy actually became a pretty important part of, of baseball, right? Uh, that players were actually starting to think through uh, some of these issues. How do you manufacture runs when some of the equipment is just constantly reused and you know, baseball is actually getting thrown back into the into the game of play, uh, maybe because of cost. But uh, the fact that the scuffs and all, it's like we're going to continue to play with that. Right. It was not sort of a lively uh, concoction that uh, baseballs uh, physically are today. Uh, home runs not as common as they are today. Right. So the idea of playing what we call today small ball, right, became very strategic. Right. How do you manage? How do you do? You actually manufacture those runs and, and, and try to outwit the other the other team. And that's uh, certainly where. Uh, Myers and his uh, his friends on the New York Giants, uh, later the book Brooklyn Robins and the Boston Braves, uh, and the various uh, players and uh, teams uh, in that era uh, played. And uh, John McGraw and the New York Giants, a very interesting topic that I think we'll go back to uh, in episodes to come as more indication of how small ball and strategy really became an integral part of, of baseball. But frankly, let's be honest, right? And we talked about this quite a bit, uh, the plight of the Native American uh, the arguably the first sort of major minority uh, to have to crack and as- into and or assimilate into, if you will, the white man's game, right? That being a baseball. And interestingly, uh, it, it harkens back to our episode number 14 with Bill Young, when we talked about some of these issues as it relates to African-Americans and the whole Negro League saga. Um, you know, in some respects, this uh, sort of the story of Myers as uh, almost a precursor uh, on a on a maybe a smaller basis uh, to the uh, the bigger and more pronounced plight of African Americans and their uh, struggles to integrate into uh, the game of baseball and and, and writ large uh, American sports too. So uh, you know these are issues that uh, are that that uh, you know kind of uh, go far beyond this the issue that uh, playing of, of games and and being on teams and and, and winning pennants right. These are uh, social issues that uh, unfortunately are still. Uh, challenging us all as Americans and as uh, as human beings, uh, and I think that's the the uh, the, uh, the interesting nature of this story uh, uh, being so multifaceted. Uh, the book uh, that uh, Bill uh, wrote about uh, about Myers is called John Tortoise Chief Myers: A Baseball Biography. Uh, it is published by our friends at McFarland Press. Uh, you will find a link to this book. Uh, as you can always find links to books and CDs and videos and things that we reference on the show uh, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just go to the listen section. You'll see all the uh, all the shows that we've done to date listed there. And of course, for every episode, you will see links uh, conveniently there for you to uh, consider a purchase of said media to uh, to go deeper uh, into uh, into the stories that we talk about. Uh, the other book that we referenced, and frankly, when uh, in 1966 or so when it was published uh, is when uh, Myers actually sort of became uh, rediscovered. Uh, we mentioned some of the uh, 
the television appearances that he made. And, and obviously, we'd love to scour to find some of those. But there is audio of some of those appearances out there, I think, as part of this book as well. Uh, that book is called The Glory of Their Times. It's by written by a Lawrence Ritter. Uh, like I said, it came out originally in 1966 by Macmillan, the publisher. Uh, but there have been a number of paperback editions that have come out since. Uh, we'll have a link to that book as well. And I highly encourage uh, if you're going to go deeper on this story, to read both of these books in tandem, uh, both uh, that of uh, Bill Young's uh, biography of, of Myers, but also Myers' contributions to the glory of their times, which, again, regales in some of the earliest days of baseball uh, as uh, these players were sort of uh, nearing uh, uh, the natural end of their lives and uh, and reminiscing and, and recalling and, frankly, uh, importantly, remembering uh, this uh, dead ball era, which was so uh, crucial uh, into the uh, development of the sport that we know today. So um, a rich uh, conversation. And thank you, Bill, for for being part of our our uh, our ongoing march towards uh, uh, what we uh, like to rediscover about uh, teams and leagues that don't exist anymore. And we thank you for being part of it. We also thank you for listening. Uh, we also encourage you to not only go to our website, goodseatstillavailable.com. That's where you'll find all the information that you need to know about us, uh, all the old episodes, as we said, but also the social media links, you want to send us an email, there's a link there. If you want to see us on social media, uh, you will find the links there. But uh, Twitter is at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. Give us a like there. We love that. And if you want to go to Instagram and see a daily image from this week's each week's show, uh, you can do that too. And that's at Good Seats Still Available uh, on the Instagram platform. We also want to thank, of course, our friends at Podfly Productions who help uh, deftly put this show together with all the elements that uh, we try to throw their way and and uh, and confuse and, and obfuscate. But uh, the guys at Podfly both uh, uh, are both professional, but they're also very good at what they do. And uh, they keep me going and I appreciate their help immensely. And they know who they are, but you should know them too. That's David Gregerson. That's Corey Coates. That's Jerry Payne. And that's Eric Begay. Among a cast of others, Podfly Productions, give them a shout or a look at podfly.net, especially if you're considering your own podcast. Give them a try. Tell them that I and or the Good Seats podcast sent you. Um, and we now send you along your merry way. Thank you for listening to us. Uh, please continue to do so and rate and review us if you like it. And uh, we uh, certainly love and are enthused by your uh, enthusiasm, I guess, for the show. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. Uh, so until then, take care, everybody. Peace.